check one two. Make check one two. Let's do it. Hey everybody, welcome to the Nordy Pod. I am not Pete Nordstrom. My name is Nathan Shields. I'm the editor of the show. And uh, we also have Kent Worthington here. He does a majority of the recording for the show and is kind of a co-producer with me. Kent, say hi. Hey there. Hi. Sorry, can I do that again? (laughs) And we have Kent Worthington here. Kent, say hi. Hey there. Hi. No, I don't want to say hey there. That's not what you I want just to say. Did. But See, I, that's, that's, that's how, podcast but gold that's right there. that's not how I want to show up. It's got to be <laughs> this better is the than that. You can't say, hey there. Okay. Hi. Hello. That's a little formal. Hey there. Hi. Hey, Kent. You got something? Nate, call me back if you need me to do a little punch <laughs> in. We can just record it later, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, welcome to the Nordy Pod. I'm Kent Worthington, I've worked for Nordstrom for over 30 years, and we have Nathan here as well, who is our editor for the Nordy Pod. I help Pete in the office here. We are kind of taking a different approach for this episode. We are actually gonna interview Pete and ask him some questions about his life, his business, all that good stuff. So let's get into it. This has been really great being involved in this. I, I remember watching your band play down at um, in Georgetown at, at some bar. Uh, what's that place? I don't know. Where well, we, what, were we playing at Slim's? Slim's Last Chance. I remember, <laughs> Pete, you came up to me and you said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this podcast thing, and I'm wondering if you want to be involved in it. And, and I said, Are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, <laughs> is this are you sure this is in my wheelhouse? And you go, no, this is in your wheelhouse. So I just really appreciate you, you know, getting me involved in this. And it's been really great. I've learned a ton about business and leaders and things like that and athletes and all your interests, which has been certainly interests of mine as well. And, and so I, I'm grateful that you've included me on the podcast journey. Well, thanks. So I guess the first question we have is, why did you start the podcast and what was kind of the idea behind it? Oh, man. Um, It goes back a ways. It's something we talked about, I think, just because it was a new medium, right? And there was an ability to reach people in a very direct and, and personal way. And so it was appealing in this idea that Anything that we can do to be connected to customers is probably a good thing. So, Pete, are, are you a podcast listener? Is there any, do, did you know what you were getting into? <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, no. <laughs> I, I'd heard some podcasts, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I, I was an avid podcast listener. So, and I guess maybe since I'm, I wasn't an avid podcast listener, what ran through my mind is like, well, why would someone want to listen to this? And I, and trying to understand from someone like myself, if you're just kind of like, oh, let's, there's a lot of things I could listen to. Why would I choose to listen to this? So like, so I guess I would turn it on you guys. Like what, as you think about, I mean, we've had 40 something episodes. Does anything stand out to you, whether it was a specific thing that happened or a 
theme that we chased or something that was revealed that really stands out to you as being good? I always lean into this success story of Viore yeah. and kind of what they've done. And th- this so that is was more... an early episode, the Joe Cudler episode, yeah. And I also think I'm very interested in sustainability and information around how, how to make a business more sustainable. And I think Allbirds episode was really great as well, yeah. how they talked about what they were trying to do with uh, product innovation. Yeah, what you touch on there has become to me a theme of this that we didn't set out necessarily to do, but that's, there's this entrepreneurial thing. And you could, it's, you know, people like that that are in our industry, but it's also true whether I'm interviewing a guy like Kevin Calabro, he's a, he's a announcer at basketball, a, a musician like Chris Ballou or, you know, an athlete like Sue Bird or something. All these people in their own way, they're entrepreneurs. They've created something, whether it was an individual thing or they started a company. Or, and I have found that that's been a thread that's run through a lot of these episodes, like that makes it consistent is celebrating and, and learning about the success of people from all different kind of walks and how that's kind of a business principle, this entrepreneurial spirit. Nate, what yeah, about you? And, yeah. I mean, I think I really like the, when you're out there engaging with your employees or engaging with customers when you're out there on like in the stores. Yeah. It's funny. We talk about, it's like, what do they call it? Pete in the wild or something when I'm out there, yeah. like I'm mic'd up, which I got to say, that makes me feel a little self-conscious being out there mic'd up. But it is interesting to engage with people in that way. And we've done a fair amount of that, whether it's customers or employees. And we've done it at, yeah. we've done it at distribution centers and stores and all over the place. Well, yeah, I really love hearing the culture and all those characteristics and values are, they are all the way down there on the sales floor. And just kind of like an overarching theme of the podcast. And, some, and it's, it's kind of something that we talked about in the very beginning that this is should be more personal. And even though we learn a lot of really great things about business and success stories of business leaders, we also, I mean, you get to see the human side of people and there's a lot of vulnerability in this show. So that's what's relatable is when you can be open like that. We talk about vulnerability and stuff. Have you ever cried at work? Oh, sure. You know, and I, and how do you handle... I mean, I'm trying to... Well, I've so done, I, have a, I said that so quickly, I'm trying to remember. I'm sure I have. <laughs> the reason why I bring this up, and I, I still feel a little bit of shame around it, actually, but when in 1990, when Eric was my store manager at Northgate, I was a visual manager and he wanted to go down to just one person. And well, I he remember, didn't cut you, though? No, he didn't cut me, but I remember just like tearing up and kind of, you can't like... How am I going to do all this as like one person? I remember being really vulnerable and walking out of his office going, man, you cannot do like, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, <laughs> I've had a lot of people crying in my office before. Well, how do you look at people that that cry? Look, and I think a big part of what makes us all work is the humanity of it. You know, I mean, people aren't robots and stuff. So, I mean, there's an authenticity, there's a humanity about it. And, and when that when that's revealed, I think it's endearing. I think it makes people sticky in this business. I think they like it here where they feel like they can be here with their authentic selves. And I think customers see it. I mean, we it's not a bunch of people that are following a script. I don't know. There's some, I, I, there's some rawness to it. I think, the, yeah. And I think that genuine rawness or whatever you want to call it can be a differentiator in a real positive way. So when like deciding to start this podcast, did you have any trepidation or is this kind of, I mean, you, you've done a lot of media 
being the head of a company like this. So does that ever make you nervous in any way of, of being in front of people, like opening up yourself or? Well, you know, when you work at a company where your brothers, like your partner side by side and your cousin and stuff, I knew I was going to get a really bad time from those guys if it became this tough <laughs> piece about, you know, the personality and life of Pete Nordstrom. I was like, <laughs> man, this will be bad and I'll never hear the end of it. So I've been super reluctant to talk about myself on this because that was never the intention of this thing. And I, and I've actually been happy that I've been able to give a vehicle for other people's stories, not mine. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about yourself. Though, okay. Cause, <laughs> cause, uh, I guess it's happening. I mean, yeah. And it pertains to like your leadership position. Have you always kind of been this way, like throughout your life or like, can you think of moments in your life, like like in your friend group, were you kind of a leader or? Um, I don't think I was particularly a leader. I was, you know, growing up, I was pretty much a rule follower. I wasn't much of a rebel. I wasn't really trying to stake a real individual perspective or claim on stuff. If I look back on it, most of the things I did were pretty predictable things. I went to a good high school, a nice family. I went to the local university. I went to the University of Washington. I joined a fraternity that my brother Ori was in and my dad had been in. I. I mean, if I look back on it, I certainly didn't take a ton of risks. Do you think the family lineage and the company kind of informed some of that direction for you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, and I ended up working at Nordstrom. So I think people kind of feel like, well, it's all been kind of prescribed and scripted. And it wasn't really that way. It, it just kind of worked out. But I think part of it is just the way I was raised. And if people knew my mom and dad, you know, they're very sincere, humble people. And that's what they tried to teach us growing up. And so while we, you know, I clearly came from a privileged background and stuff, it was, I think my dad went to great lengths to make sure we didn't act in a privileged way or, you know, we're not given those kinds of advantages. I mean, I think he really wanted us just to be like normal, regular kids. So he would not tell you to go out and buy a fancy car. If you wanted to buy a fancy car, well, would you... <laughs> Would he edit that and say, no, you can't buy that car. You should buy. Yeah, no, he was really interested in us keeping a low profile. If you know my dad, I mean, he had very few interviews. I mean, they were really successful. They had a, a growing company that had a lot going for it. He was just super reluctant to make it about him. It was always kind of about the team and he tried to deflect that stuff and and that, that's how we were raised. So your point about a car, though, I mean, one of the things they said to us early on, my brothers and I was like, if you want a car, you're going to have to buy your own car. We're not going to buy you a car. Mm. And so when I started working, it was really a means to an end. To I wanted to buy a car when I turned 16, not like, oh, I'm learning the business from the ground up and like, because someday I'm going to be in Nordstrom. I didn't really feel that way at all. I, that was not what was going through my mind. Yeah. What about that? Were you pushing for something else, some other trajectory, or did you think I'm going to end up doing this? Look, I mean, I think like a lot of young people, you have dreams and aspirations that might not be grounded in reality as you get older. But, you know, I played a lot of sports growing up and I really like that and I'm tall. So... And whenever I met people, my, my personal identity was usually like, well, do you play basketball? And yes, I do play basketball. And so when I was a young person, I was like, well, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. You know, those kinds of dreams. And, you know, it's, as you get older, it becomes clear that that may not be really in the cards. But even as I was in high school and stuff, that was really kind of my identity that I was staking out was 
you know, my, that's kind of my tribe. But your rock star dreams are still alive, though. <laughs> Those are still alive. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess like every other teenage boy of my era, there was someone like owned an electric guitar at a certain point. And I was one of those kids, too. I mean, I was 13, 14 years old and I got electric guitar, took lessons. and But again, it wasn't because I was staking out new ground. I mean, that was pretty typical stuff. I was, you know, again, I was just kind of following the natural inertia of life, I guess, at that point. I was playing sports. I was going to school. I like music. Maybe I could play the electric guitar. And I learned that it didn't come to me very naturally or quickly. I mean, I, I wasn't just naturally able to like play a bunch of songs and have it sound great. So there's a lot of frustrating moments, like sitting on the edge of my bed, trying to learn how to play a song and have it sound like it sounded on the radio. It's like, it was really hard to do. I, I, I didn't quite figure that out. Well, so coming back to the business side of it, I mean, was there a, ever a moment where you were like, if I want to do something else, I mean, this is a moment where I have to choose which way I'm going. Oh, you know, when I was probably about 21 years old, I was in college and I was an English major in college, which again, I think lets you know that I wasn't necessarily planning on being a retailer. I mean, I I read a lot of books. I wrote a lot of papers. I can write a pretty good letter, I suppose, or a decent email if I have to. But I had worked as my summer job was working at Nordstrom ever since I was like 12 years old. And I liked it. I, I enjoyed it. I got a chance to see my dad who was successful and I acted like, you know, he enjoyed his work and he enjoyed his life. I like my family. So I like the idea of being attached to them. Both my brothers were doing the similar things. They were summer jobs working at Nordstrom. And I think by the time, you know, I was sophomore junior in, in college, my brother, older brother Blake was working at Nordstrom. And so I, that seemed appealing to me. And I guess I just decided, you know, I'm going to do this. And I knew myself well enough that if I didn't, actually start doing something right away, I probably wouldn't apply the energy I needed to. I guess I'm kind of, I needed that forcing function. I I think I'm inherently kind of a lazy person. So what I didn't do is like, oh, I'm going to take a year off after college and I'm going to travel around or I'm going to be a bartender in Sun Valley or you know, there's all these things that as I look back on it now, those would have been really fun and cool things to do that you could only do at that time in your life. But I didn't because I didn't trust myself. I felt like I need to get going. And I know what the Nordstrom thing is. There's a meritocracy about it. You got to go do the jobs and you got to have the success and then you can build it. And I didn't want to start doing that later. I wanted to grind through that hard work stuff right off the bat. I guess I had some idea in my mind that it was going to get easier as I got older. It really didn't. But I mean, I think, you know what I mean, Kent, because you work here. I mean, when you're working on the floor and doing that, that. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And working in the stores is hard. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard and you're, you know, you're on it all the time. So you talked about this a little bit, like the, the values that um, you grew up with, that your dad instilled in you, of humility and authenticity. And I'm wondering when that kind of transferred over to where you could see that working actually in a business to make the business successful. Yeah. Well, I would say the other values that he, if I just listen to you talk about that, the other ones that were big to him were loyalty and hard work. So Mm. you got that humility, that authenticity, the loyalty, the hard work thing. That was my, my dad's thing. And so, I mean, whatever I am is really an honest byproduct of how I was raised. I mean, I don't, it wasn't a calculated thing for me, but I, I will tell you, I mean, I remember having a conversation with my dad a few years ago and I I said, you know, dad, I I find myself increasingly the older, I'm just not, I'm not curious about stuff. 
And he said, well, of course you are. If, if it's something, if it's a subject you're interested in, or if it's a person you're interested, in, I said, because uh, I guess what I was referring to is what I, where I've never felt very comfortable or something I like really enjoyed is like dropping me in a room of a bunch of people I don't know. And just like chatting it up, like, a, you know, like there's nothing really kind of worse than that party or the dinner party you're at where you really don't know the people and you're just making a lot of small talk for hours. Now, some people like that stuff. I don't. I mean, I can do it, but I don't enjoy it very much. But it was interesting when he said, no, I think you actually are a curious person and, and engaged if it's something that you're interested in. So I think in a lot of ways, the benefits probably of me doing this podcast is I think I've learned how to be a better listener and to be more curious about people. So, and, I've, and I've learned that I, I've enjoyed that. So I don't know if that's going to get me over my dislike of dinner parties or parties where I don't know anyone making small talk. Probably not. But I have learned how to lean in and it's helped, I think, inform how I could be a better leader at work too. Because listening is such an important part of that and giving people a chance to engage with you in a very authentic, candid way um, where it, it's I'm leading with curiosity. That's a great unlock, I think, in terms of being able to get the best out of people. Yeah, there's a quote actually in the hallway that says, talk less, listen more. Yeah, I used to have Pete that sign up. Is, is that right? Was my and name attached to it? Your name was attached to it. Do you remember saying that? <laughs> oh, well, or is it, <laughs> is it something that maybe we just made some transfers and put them on the wall? Probably. Well, look, at I, I used to have a sign in my office that said, listen more, talk less. I'm sure I read it somewhere. There's no way I coined that phrase <laughs> and made that up. I've been pretty good at plagiarizing good ideas over my life, but that it's nice if that's attached to me, but... I don't know how good I am at that, but I, I'm aware of it, and I try to be good at it. With listening to customers, has there ever been a situation where there was a lot of customer feedback around one topic where it created some sort of transformative change for the company that you can think of? I mean, I think about the common stuff that I tend to hear, some of it's somewhat evergreen. I mean, if people are dissatisfied with what's going on here, oftentimes it's because They've had a lot of experience with Nordstrom. They have a high level of expectation of what's going to happen based on their previous experiences. And in some cases, either we're doing it poorly and not as well as we used to, but in a lot of cases, just times moved on and things are different. And a lot of people don't like that things are different. And think about the business runs in fashion. If the only thing we did was kept carrying the same stuff and it became replacement clothes for people as they wore it out because that's just what they like. We would never grow the business. You'd never sell them new things. I mean, it would, the business would just wither and die. So, I mean, the, the natural lifeblood of this thing is to keep going and to keep trying to attract more new people and make the people that have been here happy and want to buy new things. Not just like, I guess I need a new pair of shoes because I have a hole in the shoes. I mean, if that, if we were only in the replacement business based on stuff wearing out, it'd be a tiny business. It probably wouldn't be a business. Do you think customers' expectations for service have changed over time since you've been in this business? Oh, totally. And maybe how they've, how they've changed? Yeah, well, the biggest thing that I can think about is if, and Kent, you know this, because you we used to work on the floor here and, and understand the service proposition for customers, but we used to get recognized and appreciated for the high-touch nature in, in which we did things. And I want to, I'm going to want you to tell you story because you've told me before about you taking care of that customer going to the airport. We're going to get to that in a second. But through the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s, 
we had this big reputation of a company that would go the extra mile and do extra amazing things. And so you like you've heard us talk about the tire story is true and some of these amazing stories. But the thing that evolved in the 90s when digital business came along, it was the biggest enabler of a thing that I think changed the game around how you define good service. And people started talking about convenience as being something that they valued. And if you think about companies like Netflix or Amazon or the way they came in and they completely just changed the game around speed and convenience, it just put a whole new filter on things. So we had to go from feeling like, well, we, we learned the lesson that we don't define what good service is. Customers define what it is. And that can change. So... Having said that, Kent, I mean, you were selling for us in the 80s, right? Yeah, the late 80s in okay. downtown Seattle. So here. talk about your experience, like some of the d- defining experiences you had as a salesperson in downtown Seattle. I mean, working as a salesperson in men's furnishings in the late 80s, I remember coming into work and working my regular shift. And then in the evening on my way home, I would deliver packages to customers that and we call them hand carries. Yes, basically. and that wasn't unusual. I would do that too. I mean, it'd be like, you know, if I lived, like I live in Wallingford and like, oh, we got a customer. I'm like, Pete, can you drop this off, these shoes off their house? I would do that. But, you know, one, one of the stories that stands out in my mind is I was on the sales floor. I had a, a guy come in that was going to a business meeting in Boston the next day and he bought a dress shirt and he needed it altered. Now, and, but real quickly, now, how did you know that? Is that because you were asking him questions? Or yeah, was I was asking him questions. And then I got one of our alterations people. They said, yeah, we'll turn this right around. End of the day came, and I was upstairs in the stock room. I was going through, looking where all the alterations were placed. I couldn't find it. Came in the next morning. Really early, I kept looking for it. I mean, it was a bit of a scene, and I tend to be a little high-strung and panicky as it is. (laughs) And so at this point, he called me and said, my flight's leaving, and I'd really love that shirt. And somehow, by divine intervention, I was closing a door, and there on the door— In the stock room? In the stock room. There on the door was the shirt hanging. It was done, had the alterations ticket on it. Jumped in my car, drove down to SeaTac Airport, and this was when you could go to the gate, went to the and gate. And there wasn't a cell phone probably either. You couldn't call the guy no. up and say, I'm going to be there. So I'm basically running through the airport <laughs> with the dress shirt flailing behind me, and I, I get up to the gate, and they were just boarding, and he was right there, and I said, here's your shirt. You got on the flight, and that was... You know, but that's what we did. Yeah, and that was, I remember we there, we used to get a lot of satisfaction out of, those became internal stories. But I'm curious, I mean, that's kind of a heroic thing. I don't think did, he ever wrote a letter. No, that's my question. Did he ever, or did you say thanks? I mean, kind of because either he expected I really, that or He what was kind you? of like, wow. But he did come back in and, and buy, oh, buy okay. stuff from me. And, you know, he became... You know, a really good customer. Well, that's a good story. And, and did you feel like you just you had latitude to do that just because of where you work? Yeah, I mean, I think for day one when I was hired, it was all about. I remember seeing a sign on the wall, walking in the employee hallway. It said, "There is only one rule: use good judgment." Well, I mean, to your point though, Nate. I mean, it was it was really a great thing you did, but that was not entirely unusual. I mean, you could have talked to a hundred people that worked at Nordstrom downtown Seattle at that time, and they'd have their own story that's something like that. Yes, most definitely. I mean, everybody everybody kind of had a story like that, and probably multiple stories. Which, you know, brings me, to, as you're talking about that, it makes me feel like, you know, because 
we don't have that anymore where we have one rule, use good judgment. Because sometimes people use bad judgment and they thought it was a good judgment. So we're like, well, we actually have some rules. But at a certain point, the, the beauty of that was the simplicity, right? And then to your point, the empowerment part of it. And I wonder when people say we're not as good as we used to be, you know, maybe we've lost some of that for all kinds of practical reasons. We're a giant company like, you know, it can't just be a free for all. People do whatever they want to do. But there was there was a beauty to that that empowerment thing that got the best out of what people had to offer. So speaking of empowerment, obviously people make mistakes here, you know. <laughs> yes, we all do. And we all make mistakes. And, you know, as a as a leader, how do you approach mistakes within the company? You know, it's funny you said that because I was in a meeting this week with a bunch of buyers and they were talking about some of the successes they had. They were each standing up and talk about something they did last quarter. And one person got up and said, I want to talk about a failure that we had, but we failed fast and we learned from it and it enabled a better decision the next time. And a bunch of people cheered for that. I thought that was great. I mean, first of all, it was kind of a vulnerable thing to say, you know, we did this thing, we bought this, we thought it'd be great. Customers hated it, but we learned that. And so now we pivoted to this thing and now it's going better. We, but we tried something. And I thought that that whole idea of he felt like this is a place where he could try something. And if he was going to fail, he had to fail fast so we could move on. But he did that and he talked about that. And I thought just to say that in front of everybody when we're applauding successes and he did that in the context of that was a success to him that he was able to fail fast and learn and able to do that in a company like ours. I thought that was awesome. So it, it reminds me we should we should create an environment that invites more of that, encourages more of that. Yeah, I definitely think that as well. I think that we're, you know, this company is, there's a lot of perfection here or striving for perfection. There's a lot of that. Yep. And I think sometimes that creates a false sense of precision that is cumbersome. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that that could be a whole episode. Can you think of an example in your career where that you've made a big mistake or <laughs> you learned from it and somehow? Oh, man. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of little things that happen all along the way. But the themes about the stuff that I learned along the way is, you know, there's there's a real humility about this business. You're not well served by acting like, you know, everything because you don't. And it's just, it's off-putting to people, I think, too, when you, so I, there's things that come along that humble you, and it's a nice reminder to try to keep it that way. So that's, that's one thing. I think the other thing is, you know, your success is ultimately going to be defined by how you can engage and leverage a bunch of people to do their best and then end up performing well. Because there's a limit to what one person can do, right? I mean, there's a there's a leverage point about scale with getting a bunch of people to be focused and aligned around an initiative or an agenda. And if you can do that, you know, you can accomplish a lot. So, I mean, I, I'm reminded of that stuff all the time, too. And then I think just being grounded that this this business really is about customers. And, you know, as soon as... You forget that is when you kind of lose your way in a business like this. How do you remind yourself? Obviously, you say it's about customers. Do you remind yourself every day that it's about customers? Do you 
Do you just think about all your decisions through a customer lens? Well, I think my my learning about everything I've done comes from a place where that's it was informed by me helping customers. I mean, it, you know, I spent a big chunk of my young life, um, you know, both when I was in school and then my young professional life interfacing directly with customers. And I still do. I mean, and you guys know this. I mean, the phone rings for me. I pick it up and I talk to customers or they email me. And I mean, that really keeps you grounded. But I guess, again, when you've done those jobs where you're, in my case, I was selling shoes and you're sitting across from a customer and you never forget about what that means. And all these things that we do, they have to be in service of making that work better. So, you know, th- those are important lessons to reaffirm to yourself all the time. It's, a, it's one of the reasons that our offices, is, it is a, we're above a store, right? I mean, we're right here. I walk through the store every day, partly just to help ground me on this is what we do. I'm sitting here in an office talking about all kinds of things or stuff on a whiteboard or, you know, that's all interesting. But until there's an application of how that actually impacts the point of sale and customers, it becomes academic and I need I feel like I need that reality to keep us grounded and what it is that we're actually here to do I kind of want to hear some personal stuff from Pete so tell us you obviously have a family and you have probably a morning routine that you go through when you're <laughs> when you get up in the morning and kind of how you're what happens in your house before you come to work maybe you could talk a little bit about you know your family and, and what happens on a work morning for you. <laughs> well, I think anyone that's a parent would find this highly relatable because I think <laughs> if you're a parent, you got this stuff. So I, I mean, I got married later in life. I was 45 when I got married. And then I had two kids after that. So my, my kids are pretty young. I think relative to a guy my age, my kids are 11 and 13. And so I think immediately people can recognize if you're a parent, what that means. So like my day to day, I mean, you know, it's the first week of school and <laughs> my kids have a hard time rolling out of bed on time and eating their breakfast and getting ready to go. <laughs> and my wife's pacing around and she's nervous and we're all down there. And then she goes, can you drive Chet to school? Our son today. I said, I, only if I leave right now, because I actually <laughs> have a meeting at eight o'clock where I have to be there. I cannot be late. I feel bad for my wife. Like, I, just, I can't. I can't help it. I got to go. So, so that, how, does that, Chet, how does Chet get to school if you can't I don't drive? know. Well, my wife ended up taking me. I think Chet and my daughter, Mickey, they, they were going to be late because, I, you know, my household routine is probably feels really familiar to a lot of people. I, you know, every, everyone's just trying to do their best uh, in the moment. And, you know, I'm try, I try to live in the moment as best I can and appreciate the good the good stuff that goes with that and not just get all aggravated by the the tough stuff. But, you know, I'm human too. There's some aggravating moments. Thinking about your dad and the lessons you learned from him, how do you hope to be seen by your own children? Uh, Look, I feel like my dad was just instinctively such a good dad. It wasn't because he read a bunch of books about it or had a very calculated way. I think he was just intuitively trying to do his best. And I think when it goes back to those values... We talked about, you know, like loyalty and hard work and humility and authenticity and those things. That's just, he lived that way and he was consistent in terms of his approach. I don't know. I just really benefited from that. So, I mean, if I think about how I want my kids to think about me, I mean, if, if 
I mean, I hold my dad in really high esteem for the way he, he parented us. And if I can end up having that kind of impact on my kids, then I think I will have accomplished being a good parent. Thinking about how that translates over to the business, you are closer to the end of your career than you are the beginning. <laughs> what are you saying, Nate? What do you mean? <laughs> um, thinking about how one day you're, you know, you're, you're going to retire. How do you instilling or hope to have those same values that you've talked about carry on into the future of Nordstrom? Well, look, at I mean, back to the part of all the humbling things that happen here. I mean, you, you learn quickly at a big company like this that it's not about me. I mean, you know, a lot more customers know their salesperson or the people they interact with all the time. They don't know who I am. I mean, people aren't shopping here because of Pete Nordstrom or Eric Nordstrom. And it's a big company. I And I don't feel nostalgic about that. I mean, when it's time for me to turn the page on that and, and retire from a day-to-day part of working here, I think life's going to go on fine. I don't feel like, oh, my God, I can't possibly leave because... I'm providing something for the company that can only be provided by me. I mean, there's a lot of hubris in that. I'm not, I don't feel that way. I mean, we got a lot of great people here that have got the DNA of Nordstrom in their bones. And I, I think that's going to, well, obviously it's, it's happening because we have stores all over the country and, you know, customers all over the place. So I, I don't, I, I feel confident that that's going to happen, but I, I, I feel like I also have a sense of responsibility that I want to do the best I can to embody, you know, the values of this place as best I can, as authentically as I can. Right. I don't want it to be unnatural or insincere. So I, I try to just be myself as best I can. I, I guess that's how I think about it. But I, I'm proud of what we've been able to accomplish here. And it makes me proud when I introduce myself to people or they see my name. They say, oh, Nordstrom, I'm like, well, what's up with that? Are you one of those Nordstroms? And my answer is, Yeah. And it's usually met in a positive way. So, I mean, I feel really grateful for that. That's great. Pete, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Oh, man. Well, I think I'll still be living here on Mercer Island, a suburb of Seattle. I I would imagine if I'm not, I'm pretty sure I won't be doing a day-to-day job at that point, but I would probably still be on the board of directors, which would be great. Although we do have a mandatory retirement age of the board of directors at 72, which, by the way, the third generation Nordstrom's implemented when they were probably in their 40s. Thought it was a great idea. <laughs> and then they became 72. And then they weren't on the board anymore either. So, I mean, but that's all I, I could see where that's all going. But I, I like being attached to the business, even if I'm not working. Right? I'd like to be attached in some way. But then, you know, that page will get turned too. But it's a really good question. I, I don't know exactly how I'll spend my all my time. But I do know that, you know, my family, my friends are going to be an important part of that. And so, yeah, we'll see. Well, Pete, I uh, appreciate you sitting down and entertaining our questions here. And uh, this podcast that you've put some time and energy into this, I've learned a lot personally, you know, about business and more about fashion than I (laughs) ever knew before. But uh, you're doing a great job on here. And thanks for... um, doing all that and and sitting down today with us. Look, I I appreciate you guys, first of all, working with you on this. It's been fun to do. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to ask me these questions. So you're nice to me. So thank you. You know, I mean, it's it's (laughs) fun actually hearing you talk about yourself. 
it is fun to hear you describe things and your lens on things. And it's unique. I mean, you're a fourth generation person. Typically, companies don't make it through the fourth generation historically. And you guys have, you know, done some remarkable work here to kind of keep this on the rails. And it's inspiring. I think you inspire a lot of people here. Oh, that's really nice. I appreciate that. Thanks. Well, that's the show, folks. Really glad you joined us on this one. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to do this outro because uh, this is Pete's least favorite part. We hope you keep listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a like, share, and review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast and follow us on the Instagram page at the nordypod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. And we say this all the time, but we really do want to hear about your experiences with Nordstrom. So if you have a story of great service or even bad service, please send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com or give us a call and leave a voicemail and you may just get a chance to talk to Pete on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordypod. And make sure to tune in next time as Pete dives deep into one of the most exciting fashion events of the year, London Fashion Week. Literally, you're kind of at the beginning of the week, you're just trying on everything. You're kind of visually imagining what the show might look like, how it begins, how it ends. The most thrilling thing is when you try on something that's come in very last minute and you have a model come in for the casting and they, you know, you zip them into it. It fits beautifully and they bring it to life in a way that even you didn't expect. The shows are such an investment. Like, there's no way around it. But... I think it is the best bit. And London has the best punk energy. You can be whoever you want to be. And there's no kind of hierarchy, which is amazing. Even if you're a young designer or you're an established house, really here, it doesn't matter. It's all about your attitude. That's the very best part about London Fashion Week. Pete sits down to talk with a couple super interesting fashion designers, Simone Rocha and Erdem Miralioglu, to hear about all the anticipation and preparation leading up to this season's show. So join us next time on The Naughty Pod. <laughs>